This is a Federal News Network podcast. The capabilities of the Russian military have been on display for several days now. Its strengths, its weaknesses, and general operational doctrines. For how U.S. military leaders are likely monitoring it and taking notes, and what they hope to learn, we turn to Hudson Institute senior fellow Brian Clark. Brian, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. And in some ways, I'm hearkening back to your naval days. When Am I right in that assumption that this is a great learning experience? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, but for both sides, you know, for us to be able to observe how Russia is going to operate against a more modern military than they faced in Syria or even in their gray zone operations against Ukraine. So kind of at that peer level, you know, closer to it, they're going to be using the high end capabilities that they've been developing over the last decade or so since they really turned to a big modernization agenda. And what do we know, by the way, as an aside here about the actual Russian military? Because their platforms, like some of the helicopters they're using effectively, were first fielded in the 1960s and 1970s. Similar trucks are old. Some of their bombers go back to the 50s, kind of like us in some ways. But they can modernize them. Yeah. So what they've done is they've got it's sort of a bifurcated military. So on the one hand, you've got some very modern equipment. So they've got very modern uh, crews and ballistic missiles and the associated launchers. They've got some very modern electromagnetic warfare systems. Obviously, cyber capabilities are pretty robust, and they've got pretty good space capabilities that they've been keeping up at the the current level of uh, the state of the art. But then they've got this older equipment that dates from the Cold War that they've been just keeping up and modernizing and you know keeping in operation over the last several years. So you've got this very different set of old and new systems. But you know, in a land war against Ukraine, a lot of those old systems are still very relevant. You know, armor really is the king when it comes to fighting a, a conflict like we have in Ukraine. And fair to say that if you have a modernized missile, say, for example, the same old iron tube that launches it is irrelevant once the intelligence is in the missile itself and in its communication with some other network. Absolutely. You've got these 30-year-old trucks hauling around brand new cruise missiles that are, are intelligent and uh, in some cases can fly at hypersonic speed. So you know, you've got this mixture of the old and new that sort of exemplifies the Russian military. So in some ways, the modernization of the military by Russia mirrors what the United States branches are trying to do with modernizing themselves in an age when they can't afford unlimited new platforms, but they can bring cyber and networked capabilities. That seems to be the theme that runs through a lot of what the three major military branches are trying to do? Right. Yes. Yeah. So I think what you, what you, what you see on the uh, American side is this uh, desire to try to shift a lot of the emphasis onto the payload, right? The, the missile, the UAV, you know, the thing you carry is the thing that's got the sophisticated uh, capabilities in it. And the platform itself kind of stays relatively you know, primitive, if you will, you know, not, not, not modernized necessarily to the same degree. The problem we have is that a lot of our stuff is so highly integrated, our ships, our airplanes, that it's hard to, to, to get that separation between the payload and the platform that carries it. Whereas in the Russian military, they're very modular. So their truck that's 30 years old is not integrated very much with the weapon that it carries. So you can build, the, you can change the weapon over time and not have to change the truck. We you don't just, have that same system in the U.S. All you need is a torque wrench, basically. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, in thinking about how the U.S. military wants to modernize, again, more networked, smarter weapons and so forth, more AI, is it possible, do you think, for them in watching Russia to discern whether Russia has those networked and smart weapons capable? I guess we know some of what their weapons can do. Can we see how well networked and how well coordinated they are? We can. So what's interesting is Russia has not done as much in terms of you know, building out the kind of space-based surveillance systems that the U.S. has or the long-range satellite-enabled communication networks, you know, where the U.S. can control operations over an entire 
theater or region. Russian forces just don't have that same, you know, they don't have the budgets, they don't have the same level of infrastructure. But what they have done is invested in local networks. So they use a lot of unmanned systems, a lot of drones uh, to do surveillance and targeting and then pass that information, you know, kind of over the hill to the missile that's going to use that information. They've done a very good job there of being able to create these small area networks that allow them to get targeting back to the weapons and then use either artillery uh, or missiles uh, or even uh, rockets to be able to you know, t- to attack forces. They've used that against Ukraine very effectively. We're speaking with Brian Clark. He's senior fellow and director for the Center of Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. So in many ways, Russians have learned how to work well in what our folks call austere environments. Correct. Yeah. So Russia has done a great job of modernizing their military for their particular purposes. You know, so for example, their Navy has a lot of these older ships that date from the early Cold War even, but they've put new missiles on them. The new ships they have are these smaller corvettes and frigates that operate in their inland seas. They're operating in the Black Sea. And they're much more effective for the kinds of operations that Russia has to do today, where they're looking to try to attack neighbors in their near abroad, not go after the United States an ocean away. Um, So they've been very smart about how they've modernized. And can U.S. telemetry discern how well trained their troops are? Or maybe the differences among different troops, some of which are conscripts, some of which are a professional volunteer type of force. Right. You know, it's interesting for the Russians. What's interesting is they've been using their operations, uh, the gray zone operations in in Ukraine and then their operations in Syria as a training ground for their troops. So they've been cycling their even their conscript forces through these operations to be able to get them proficient. And uh, more importantly, to get their senior leaders you know, that are not conscripts more familiar with how to manage you know, military operations in a networked kind of high tech environment. So they've been doing that, even though they've been doing these relatively low end operations in Ukraine and Syria. So we've seen that they're fairly proficient and that they're pretty good at using the, the capabilities they have in these local area kind of network fights. So yes, I think we do have the telemetry to get that. I mean, we've been watching them over the years get better at it. So this is a good chance to see how it actually works under pressure because Ukrainians have fought back here and there. Absolutely. So you've seen some good resistance on the part of Ukrainians using their own guided weapons, some of which came from the United States. Uh, they've been using these uh, UAVs that they got from Turkey that were similar to the ones that were used in the Nagorno uh you know, rather the, uh, the, the Nagorno-Karabakh you know, conflict recently against Azerbaijan. So I think, you know, those those capabilities have been employed pretty effectively by the Ukrainians. So we get to see how the Russians respond to a, a more capable military than what they've been facing thus far. And this idea of precision warfare getting over to the hardware side has evolved, of course, in World War II. Precision bombing meant, well, it landed in Germany. And that's about all they could say about it. Today, you know, we have these targets of this car or that window. Can we tell how good the Russians are, do you think? Yeah, you can see that. Yeah, you can definitely see that our surveillance, our satellite and UAV surveillance. We've got MQ-4 Global Hawk, or rather RQ-4 Global Hawks flying over Ukraine. We've got satellites that are watching Ukraine to see how well they operate. And Russia, interestingly, um, they've been using aircraft for some of these airstrikes. And what's important about getting an airstrike correct is actually navigating the airplane to the right location rather than the weapon getting there. But now you've got the ability to precisely navigate the airplane and the weapon. Uh, but the, the the Russians have been using a lot more of these surface-to-surface missiles. So the Iskander and the Cal missiles they've been using are very precise. We've been able to see that thanks to the surveillance capabilities the United States and even you know, commercial services have. Mm-hmm. So to the pilots, they can still shout, look out the window, Boris. Right, exactly. If you get to the right place, that's the most important part of making sure that you can get the weapon in the location it needs to be. This invasion, then, you could characterize it as a rare data gathering exercise. 
for the U.S. Yeah. forces? Yeah, definitely. It could be. A, it's an opportunity to see how Russia is going to operate against a more capable military that that's been equipped with some U.S. systems and some Western systems. So they're not facing the Syrians who we've been actively preventing from getting those kind of weapons and uh, seeing how they respond and, and seeing how they're able to you know network together their forces using kind of this local set of capabilities that are more UAV focused than satellite focused. So with this big data gathering and happening, I presume across all the services, then the hard part is translating it into refreshed doctrine or operating principles for the U.S. Do you see that happening? And how does that happen? Well, there's these, you know, there's a there's a feedback loop that the U.S. has. Um, it's not, but it's not very effective. So this is this is one area that the U.S. military has been trying to improve is both in its own experimentation and exercises, and then in watching other countries actually do military operations, translating that into changes to tactics and how you fight, and then actually going and exercising those in a real, you know, in a training environment or in a real world environment. That loop is not completely closed for the U.S. military, and part of the problem is you need to have a, a drumbeat or a frequency of doing exercises that's fast enough so that you can practice it, mess it up, start it again, do it again. You know, so that, that, that iterative process is not quite there for the U.S. military. And that's partly a funding problem, but it's partly also a, a cultural problem that you've got to get used to doing things on a faster cycle than we have had to in the post-Cold War environment. But in the short term, would you say that perhaps the data gathering they're doing now could at least help the accuracy and applicability of the tabletop exercises? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely and it's, and it's going to help with uh, developing um, you know, the, the requirements for the next generation of capabilities. So we can kind of see based on how the Russians fight, you know, what kinds of you know, network capabilities are going to be useful against them? How, how can we use electromagnetic warfare to uh, degrade or to interfere with their ability to communicate or pass targeting information? And then what kinds of missile defense capabilities might work against the next generation of Russian precision weapons? The silver lining in this, at least, is the lessons we can learn, sad yes. as the situation itself is. Yes. Yeah, we can make the best of it, you know, by exploiting the opportunity to learn more about how Russia fights and what they're going to fight with. Brian Clark is Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing 
we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly 
gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.